you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. I was reading this week about a survey conducted by the National Teen Pregnancy Center which gave some mixed results. There, there was a bit of good news and some also bad news with that. The good news was that according to the, the Teen Pregnancy Center, teenagers that they had surveyed ranked parents as their number one source of information regarding sex and all issues related to it. And that was encouraging that teenagers themselves, when surveyed, said, my mom and dad are who I look to for information and for knowledge and for teaching on this subject. That was good news. The percentage of that, of teenagers that identified that, was 38%. Just under 40% of teenagers said their parents were the number one source of information. Now, the flip side, maybe the bad news from that, is thinking about that parents are 38% of the source of information, leaving 62% to other sources of information. And then those teenagers, they ask them about these other sources, and they're places that should make us as a church and as Christian parents shudder at the thought. They said, my friends are a source of information and teaching on this subject. Media, and they identified television and movies and the internet primarily as secondary sources of information. So 62% of teenagers said, this is the primary place I go to get information. And church, that's one key issue related to the issue of sex in our culture today. The people who are supposed to be doing the teaching and the instructing of the next generation, namely parents, aren't doing so. And so inquisitive and curious children and pre-teenagers and teenagers are looking for and are finding answers wherever they can. And it's not just that those sources and resources aren't in the same ballpark. Friends, they're not even on the same planet when it comes to teaching what God's Word says about sex and sexual intercourse. But a secondary issue, and this kind of highlights for us why this is the case, is because parents are very uncomfortable with this topic. There's a lot of parental discomfort when it comes to the thought of teaching and talking with our children about the issues of sex. I read about a man who was uh, out in his garage working one day, and his little five-year-old son came in and said, Daddy, what's sex? And the guy about choked on his tongue. He said his eye popped out of his head, you know, and sweat uh, you know, on, on his forehead. And, and he's, uh, he's stammering and stuttering. And he's like, well, well son. And, and he talks to his son about uh, anatomy and, and the reproductive process and, and really stutters and stammers through. And his little boy's eyes are going, whoa, you know, taking all this in from his dad. So finally the father finishes and he said, son, he said, why in the world did, did you even ask me what sex is? He said, you're only five. And the little boy said, because mommy told me to come and tell you that dinner would be ready in a few secs. So I didn't know what that is. And I'll tell you, many parents are flat out scared to death thinking about talking and teaching and instructing and answering questions that their kids have about this topic of sex. So instead of see, receiving instruction from godly, trustworthy, well-intentioned, mature adults... Kids and teens are turning to the internet. They're turning to videos and friends in the locker room to get answers to their questions. 
And for years, I traveled around speaking to teenagers uh, at revivals and conferences and things like that. And this is a very common topic uh, that I would speak about. And today, the audience is a little bit different. But I started the message then, and I start the message today with the same concept, the same principle from Scripture. And that is this. Sex is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. Now, some of you are secretly going, amen. That's right. Preach it. You know, let it rip, Curtis. But this is church, and the topic is sex, and we're not used to hearing about this, particularly in sermon form and sermon topics. So people are going, that's right. Woo. Let it go. And I understand and recognize some of our awkwardness and our tension, you know, in this context and format. We go, we just usually don't associate that word and this concept and, and this group of people. But I want you to understand and recognize that God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And one of the first things that God told them before sin entered into the world was to be fruitful and multiply. Now, let me tell you, God wasn't telling them to plant orchards and learn algebra, okay? That's not what that instruction meant. And this was before sin entered into the world. God was encouraging, he was permitting, he was commanding Adam and Eve to have sex and to reproduce and to enjoy that. And and by doing so, to populate the world. It wasn't an afterthought that that was begrudgingly done just to populate the earth. It was a good gift from God. Intended for procreation, which is reproduction and having children, uh, for recreation, something that was fun, uh, but also for pleasure that, that men and women and husbands and wives would enjoy. And you'll notice in Adam and Eve's approach to this topic and to this issue that Genesis 2.25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no shame for them in that day and in that time because when we do things God, God's way, there is no guilt. There is no shame upon us. We can experience the fullness of what God intended as God designed it. And when we follow God's plan for human sexuality, we can give ourselves freely to our spouse who we've made a lifelong commitment to and who has made a lifelong commitment to us. And we can be free and we can be vulnerable and we can be open and we can be honest to them without reservation or shame or guilt because we're being obedient to a part of God's plan for us, a part of God's plan in creation. Now, this is the last message in our series on family relationships, and I'll tell you, if you think sex is not an issue, then you need to wake up and smell the coffee when it comes to family relationships. Uh, Because the issue of sex or, or lack of it, it impacts relationships between their spouses, and it flows over to their children and to their extended family and into the workplace. And our culture is bombarding marriages over and over with all kinds of messages about sexuality. And if we're not dealing with it in the home, then we are so so much more vulnerable and susceptible to these things that will lead us away from God's design and God's intention. And some people will say, well, I understand all that, but I can't believe we're talking about it in church. Well, I want you to listen very carefully in these next few minutes to see that God thought it was an important enough topic to deal with it extensively. In scripture. We're not talking just a couple of references here and there scattered throughout. It is extensively dealt with in scripture because God knew it would be a big issue for people, for men and for women. And so he gives us very clear teaching and instruction on this topic in the Bible. 
Dude, you all are so quiet this morning. This is amazing. I mean, this is as quiet as it's been in here in my first year. This is, this is uh, quite hilarious on this side looking at your all's faces today. But let me first set the foundation that Scripture lays for this whole discussion, for this entire topic. Sex is for marriage only. Sex is for marriage only. Every reference that I will make this morning is to be heard and understood within the confines of a marriage relationship. The Bible affirms the basic goodness of sex, but absolutely, positively, without fail, points to marriage as the arena, the playing field, the box, if you will, within which all sexual expression is to fall. Only within a marriage relationship. Al Mohler says it this way, The Christian cannot discuss sex without marriage. It's just that simple. The only discussion of sex outside of marriage in Scripture says this, Don't do it. Don't do it. That's the only thing the Bible says about sex outside of marriage in any way, whether it's before marriage or within a marriage relationship. The only, way it's, the, the only discussion about it outside of that context is don't do it, period. There's no reason, there is no excuse, there's no rationalization that can justify any kind of sexual expression outside of marriage. If you are not married, or if you are married, then then with your spouse only, then don't engage in sexual activity. It's what the Bible teaches. Not before sex or outside of your marriage relationship. So if you have engaged or are currently engaging in sex before marriage or outside of marriage in any form, then stop. I know that may sound very obvious, but stop. End every kind of sexually involved relationship that you may be involved in. If you're in a relationship that that's been part of it, then you need to start dating and dating only. Set new lines, new boundaries, new parameters, and stop that part of the relationship. And if you say, it's too difficult, I can't do that, we can't step back over that line after we've crossed it, and it is a very difficult thing to do to step back over that line after you've crossed it, then end the relationship. And you may say, whoa, whoa, wait a second, that's pretty drastic. Yes, it's pretty drastic. But Jesus was pretty drastic in telling us to deal with sin. I believe it was Jesus who said, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. You're better off not dating that person than losing an eyeball, aren't you? Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Hey, you're better off not dating that person than, having an eye, than not having an eye and that hand, right? Jesus told us we are to take drastic measures to ruthlessly deal with sin in our life. And so if this is an issue for you, then end that relationship. Because nothing is more important than you living in faithful obedience to God's word. Absolutely nothing. So deal with it. Set those parameters, whatever those may be. You may need to move out. You may need to go find a new physical living address or have he or her move out and go find a new physical living address, but to guard yourself in this area of your life. You may need to change departments at work. There's temptation and involvement there. Go work in another department. You may need to change jobs completely to avoid and to get away from this area of temptation in your life. Do whatever it takes because there's absolutely, 
positively no way you are going to experience the fullness and the goodness and the blessing of God living with sin in your life. It's just not going to happen. Any sin, but especially in this area of sexual sin. If you know it's there, then deal with it. Confess it, turn away from it, and set parameters around it and do it immediately. So with that foundation in place, let's see what else God's Word has to say about sex for us today. Number one, sex in marriage is holy and good. It's holy and good. Again, God created and designed this before sin entered into the world. It was part of his perfect creation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, Paul writes this, Do not deprive one another, and he's talking here to husbands and wives about sexual relations in their marriage. Do not deprive one another. One commentator uses the word rob there. Do not rob one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So Paul says the only time and for the only reason that you wouldn't regularly and actively engage in sexual relations in your marriage relationship is so that the both of you can pray uh, diligently for an issue, for a topic that you are facing in your family or in your relationship. So basically it's, it's a fasting from this to be able to pray and seek God's will and direction. So Paul says that's the only reason that you would deprive one another, that you would not engage in sexual activity within your marriage relationship with your spouse. But note the warning. Paul doesn't just leave it there. He adds a warning at the end of this instruction. Uh, He says, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul says, don't go indefinitely because when you do, you set yourself up for greater temptation from other sources outside of your marriage relationship. And so for this season where you can pray, do that, but then come back together so that you won't be tempted by these things. A second thing we see in Scripture is that, that pleasure is healthy and it's expected. Look back at Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians verse 4 in the same chapter. It says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so there's this giving of ourselves to one another uh, for, for pleasure and to please and to experience the joy and the fullness uh, of bringing pleasure and joy to another person. Uh, Proverbs chapter 5, and I'll read this to you. Proverbs chapter 5 uh, tells us in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. Now, this is a passage of scripture in Proverbs 5 that's speaking about the adulteress, and it's warning uh, young men to not follow the ways of the adulteress and to be lured into her, her seductive ways because of the damage and the pain and the heartbreak that will come into their life. And so now the admonition is given to drink water from your own cistern, okay? So that's within your marriage relationship. He said, water, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Well, it's a rhetorical question, meaning no, you shouldn't go and share this part of your life. It's for you and for your spouse only. He says, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated. Be intoxicated, he says, always in her love. 
Man, what a great passage of Scripture uh, of this commitment and this devotion that you have for your spouse and your spouse only. He goes on and says in the next verse, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For, me, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the, the wicked ensnare him, and he has held fast in the cords of sin. It's bondage. You get enslaved. You get tied up to these things. It says, uh, he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So experience the joy and the fullness that comes in your marriage relationship only is what the Bible teaches. Number three, the Bible tells us that sex should be other-oriented. And this goes for every part of a relationship for that matter, that, that we should be sharing and seeking to meet the needs of our spouse and ministering and caring and showing love and adoration for them. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so we're to serve and look to the interest of others. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul's great chapter on love, and he's about love is patient and love is kind. One of the things that Paul says as a characteristic and quality of love is that love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. If it's not self-seeking, then what is it? It's other seeking. It's seeking to, to offer pleasure and show that love to others. Number four, sex is to be regular and normal. A regular and normal part of a marriage relationship. Now, there's no exact frequency given in Scripture, but the principle is that both parties are to work and keep one another satisfied, as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 said just a few minutes ago, that there's not to be a parting and a withholding, a depriving, unless for a season of prayer, but then you come back together. So it's to be regular and a normal part of the marriage relationship. And Paul says uh, later... In 1 Corinthians 7, 9, he kind of gives the warning as to why this is so important. And he's already talked about that. And he's talking about, uh, in verse 8, to the unmarried widows, he says in verse 9, If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul, Paul says that this will create a, a hunger welling up within people. And, and, and if, they, if that hunger is not met and fed in the marriage relationship, it can lead to other dangers. And so he tells unmarried widows that they need to marry rather than burn with passion. And so for in a marriage relationship, it, it means that we need to engage in sexual activity so that we don't create that hunger that would cause and, and send our mate to, find that, to have that need met elsewhere. And so it's to be a regular and normal part of the marriage relationship. Now, those are a few principles found in Scripture, but the most extensive reference in the whole Bible on the enjoyment and the pleasure and the fulfillment of sex within marriage is found in the book, The Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, uh, as you may have heard it called as well. Now, that book speaks not exclusively, but extensively about sex in the marriage relationship. It's very descriptive, it's very graphic, and it leaves pretty much no stone unturned when it comes to sex within marriage. And one of the things that we see in, in the Song of Solomon is the complexity of sex. Because sex, as God designed it, isn't exactly easy. Most couples identify this as one of the top five things that they have conflict and that they fight about in their marriage relationship. It ranks right up there with money uh, on that list of, of sources of conflict and of tension uh, within a marriage relationship. 
Now, obviously, I'm not re- referencing the, the act of sex itself. I'm referring to the atmosphere and the environment uh, and the climate within a marriage relationship. Kevin Lehman uses a great analogy uh, to show why God's design for marriage leads to a much more fulfilling sex life than the promiscuous lifestyle that's modeled in our society. You see, sex is very personal, and every person is very unique uh, in their sexual makeup. And sex occurs within the context of a relationship, and we all know that good relationships are built over time. I mean, if you're going to have a good relationship, you spend time with the person, and you invest in that relationship, and that relationship grows and it deepens. And so sex is best experienced within that relationship that takes time. And so Dr. Lehman said developing this quality sexual relationship requires a lot of time and experience with the same woman. He says, experiences with other women in any form do more harm than good. And he gives this illustration. Imagine having nine different watches on your arm set to nine different times that keep time. But once a day, they randomly change when asked what time it is. So it gets too complicated trying to read and average and figure out which one went forward, which one went backward, and and making adjustments for all that. He says, so you are much better off having just one watch which with you are more familiar and you know the trends and the dynamics and how to tell time on that one watch. And he parallels that to a sexual relationship. That you're better off to know one person and be able to invest deeply in that relationship than all those other things with the confusion and how it will negatively impact the relationship with the one that you love most and are committed the most to in your life and in your relationship. Now, the Song of Solomon gives a lot of principles, and I'm not going to go through those. You see those printed in your outline there. Uh, These came from Dr. Danny Aiken's book, God on Sex, from which I borrowed today's sermon title. Uh, So I'm not going to run through all those. I mean, I can just anticipate there are going to be some interesting conversations over lunch and after the kids go to bed tonight, uh, all around Colonial Heights and the Tri-Cities area. Now, I'm giving you a brief overview, but now that we've seen what the Bible says about sex and some principles that are there, I want to give you a, a warning about not following and not obeying uh, its teachings. It could probably go without saying, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway and point out the obvious. Sex is powerful. Sex is very powerful. I mean, think about it. Popular songs celebrate it, written, written about this topic and this issue. Fashion is so often driven by it. Wars have been started over sexual uh, interactions. Businesses are built around it, and careers have been ruined for it and because of it. Sex has the power to help create homes, but many times it's broken them. Sex has the power to allow a person to gently express his or her deepest love to the person they love more than any other person on earth, or it can become a master that enslaves them. But it all depends upon how we follow God's teaching on the subject. It depends on how well we put into practice what God tells us in his word. Sex is a good thing. It is a powerful thing. Fire is a good thing. And fire can be a very powerful thing. And if we don't care and manage and tend to a fire, it can get out of control and it can kill you. Water is a good thing. 
Water is a very powerful thing. But if we do not respect and use safeguards and precautions and parameters with water, then it too can kill you. And likewise, sex outside of God's plan can kill you. Literally, physically, end your life. But perhaps even greater are the emotional and the psychological ramifications that come from stepping outside of God's design for sexuality and living by the flesh. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look back at that chapter. At the end of chapter 6, it's interesting how Paul is writing at the end of chapter 6 and he talks about this area of sexuality and sexual immorality and tells us to not be involved with it outside of marriage. And then in chapter 7, gives us the principles we just looked about within a marriage relationship. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says this, Flee from sexual immorality. What does it mean to flee? To run away from, to get away from as fast as you can. In a few weeks in Vacation Bible School, our our kids are studying the the life of Joseph. And I'm going to preach a series on that. And we'll talk one of the weeks about what it looks like to flee sexual immorality. Paul says, get away from it. When it rears its head and when that temptation is set set before you, Run away. Be very afraid. You say, well, what's the big deal? Why in the world would we do that? Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. A part of you, a part of who you are in your deepest core, the most essential elements of who you are, is given away. The Bible says that two become one flesh through sexual intercourse. And that part of you is given away and you can never get that back. And if that person leaves and is gone, that part of you is gone with them. And you'll never be able to regain that. He goes on and says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what are we supposed to do with this information? What's the so what of today's message? How's this going to impact us tomorrow and next week? Well, a couple of things for you this morning. Number one is to commit to sex God's way. Commit to sex God's way. Uh, If you are still a virgin, young people, uh, older people that, that that are growing and waiting and still haven't married yet, commit to remaining pure until you're married. That is the greatest gift that you can give your spouse, that part of them that becomes part of who they are, that they will cherish and hold on to all the days of their lives. Shelly and I, by God's grace and mercy, were both able to, to wait and share our virginity and give that gift to one another when we were married. And we would both tell you right now, without blinking an eye, that we would not change that in a second, even if we had the opportunity. We wouldn't do that. That is a gift to be cherished and given to this person that you are making a lifelong commitment to. But if you're not a virgin or if you are in any sexual relationship before or outside of marriage, as I said earlier, then stop. And if you can't stop, end or get out of that relationship. 
And if you've been sexually active and aren't now, uh, but still aren't married, then remain abstinent until you are married. Make that commitment to follow and to only engage in sex God's way today. God is willing, God is able to forgive all of our sins, but we must be willing to admit to our sins and repent from them. The Bible tells us to repent of our sins, and that means to turn away, to do a 180. If we're going towards sin and these are the things of the world, repent means to turn away and leave those things behind. And we go to God and following God's way and what God tells us to do in his word. And God will forgive us. Of those sins, and God will begin the healing process, and he, he takes away the guilt and our shame, but we may still deal with those emotional consequences, those psychological and even sometimes the physical consequences of those actions. They may stay with us weeks, months, years, or the rest of our lives. But God can begin that healing and restoration process in, in our relationship and our walk with Him if we will turn from those things and experience His forgiveness. Secondly, I would tell you, experience sex as God intended. If you're married, then commit to seeking the fulfillment of your spouse. While a relatively small amount of time is actually spent uh, involved in intercourse, the, the time is vitally important to the overall health of a relationship. And so both men and women need to learn to grow uh, in their understanding of their mate. Men need to learn that sex isn't just a physical act, but it's also an emotional connection. And women need to learn how to express and anticipate sexual encounters instead of just accommodating their husbands. And I've listed references for you uh, in your sermon note sheet there on some some books that, that help with better communication and relationship building in this area of your marriage. I think every couple should own and read through uh, Dr. Kevin Lehman's book, Sheet Music. Read it one chapter at a time and discuss it as you go. Dr. Lehman says, sex starts in the kitchen. And he gives some very good insights about having frank, open, honest discussion uh, to help you deepen and have a more meaningful, satisfying relationship in this area of your marriage. Men, if you hear nothing else today, get the book, read the book, all right? Just take it, just on my word alone, get the book and read the book for your marriage relationship. One thing Dr. Lehman talks about discovering as you experience sexuality uh, within a marriage relationship is that we all carry ideas and thoughts and experiences and teachings into the marriage bed. And he says it's a very crowded bed because you have your parents rattling around in your mind, things that they taught you and told you, uh, things from your in-laws that, that your spouse brings into the relationship, your kids impact that, your, your past sexual experiences. All these things are, are bouncing around in your mind and they're influencing what takes place in the bedroom. And I would, I would believe that 95% of marriages, uh, nobody ever talks about those things. The, the baggage that's brought into the marriage relationship or their hopes or their dreams or, or their expectations in this area. And when those needs go unmet, uh, their resentment can begin to settle in, bitterness in the marriage relationship, and it can leak out and it, begin, it begins to poison every other area of the marriage relationship. So discover and talk about these things and, and let them be a part of the dialogue so that you can grow together and you can glorify God and experience what God has intended in your relationship with your spouse. Number three, parents, talk to your children. Talk to your children. Uh, as we, we talked about earlier, it's too easy for them to get wrong information. Uh, and so someone, you need to be teaching them God's way, God's plan, God's design uh, for sexuality. 
Don't get all weirded out and goofy and panicky about all of it, all right? I mean, it's part of what God has designed for you to do for your children. You may not cover everything in, in one talk, but begin early and lay that foundation and take those steps at the appropriate times to teach and to train your children in an age-appropriate way. And if you haven't done that up to this point, then get started. Get a plan and begin that now. And the better the relationship, this all comes back to what we've talked about this entire time, is the relationship. I just told you a few minutes ago the most important thing in a relationship is the quality of the relationship. And that comes from time and investing in the relationship. And invest in that with your children so that you can talk about these things and they can trust your teachings in this way. Shelly and I are working hard, and our goal is to lay a foundation and to have our kids know and hear from us what the Bible teaches and to talk to them and share scriptural standards and principles on these things so that when they hear anything else from anywhere in the world, their first thought is going to be, what did my mom and dad tell me? What did my mom and dad tell me the Bible has to say about it? And if this message doesn't measure up to what we've heard here, then it's not for us to follow and to put into practice. That's our goals. We want them to hear God's word and know his way and measure everything against that, not to hear the ways of the world and say, oh, that, that Bible stuff, all oh, those people, they don't know what they're talking about over there. We want God's word to be principal and everything is measured against that. So parents, I challenge you uh, to talk to your children uh, about this issue. I listed a couple of resources in there. I inadvertently left off Focus on the Family. I uh, write in there, Focus on the Family. You can look them up on the internet. They've got a ton of resources, age appropriate for you to be able to to, uh, broach this subject and this topic with your children. But parents, do it. It's too important for you to not do it. It's never too late to start working on this relationship and seeking opportunities to prepare and equip your children to face the issues and challenges in this area that the world will throw at them. Don't think it's a possibility. It's going to happen. They're already bombarded with messages and images and teachings on these things. Get in there and defend and help instill God's word and his truth in your children. When kids ask about heaven, we don't say, well, you're too young to talk about that. Well, when you get saved, you'll just figure it out. No, we talk to them about heaven, do we not? In ways they can understand. And we shouldn't leave them to their own when it comes to educating them about sex. And if your children are grown and you have grandchildren, pass these resources along. But pray for your kids and pray for your grandkids. I'll tell you, if you are not around children and teenagers and you don't know their culture and the things that they're dealing with on a daily basis... I'm telling you, it's different. I mean, it's different from when I was a kid even. It is very different. And never discount the influence a godly parent or grandparent can have in praying for the lives of their children and their grandchildren. Our time of invitation this morning is one for transformation, for forgiveness, and commitment. The Bible says if you've never given your life to Christ, then you are living in the flesh. That means you are doing things according to the flesh. Uh, That's the ways of the world and what feels right within you and what your mind says is okay and justifies these things. The Bible says you're living according to the flesh. And I'll tell you, in your own strength and in your own power, you cannot overcome your flesh because it's who you are at the core. But the Bible says if anyone is in Christ... 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. That flesh has gone. The new has come because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within that person. So today, you can be that new creation, that new creature in Jesus Christ. If you would confess your sins and admit to God that you've fallen short of his mark. Maybe not in this area, but in other areas. Because the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So for you to confess, God, I know I've fallen short. I've not met the mark of what you said in your scripture. I confess, I admit those sins. And then the Bible says, we repent. We turn away from those sins and we turn to God. And we believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he hung there and he shed his blood and he died, that he died for us. Because the Bible said that Christ died for us, that we might become the children of God. So if you would believe that Jesus died for you and then invite Christ into your life, he will forgive you of all your sins. All your sins. And the Bible says they are cast as far as the east is from the west. They are gone forever. So you can be forgiven of your sins and then this, the old is gone. That old flesh is gone and the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you. He dwells in your life, in your heart and in your spirit. And when you're faced with temptations and you have to make decisions and you don't know what to do, you can pray and you'll hear this voice whisper and you will feel the sensation of this is what God would lead me to do. And you're going to remember God's word because the Holy Spirit will bring God's word back to your mind and he will guide you and direct you in every situation that you will face. You can be that new creation today if you would receive Christ as your savior. And you may need God's forgiveness, God's cleansing or healing for sexual sin in your life. And fortunately for you, God's in the business of forgiving and cleansing and healing us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9 says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just forgiveness. It's a cleansing of all unrighteousness. God will begin that healing process in your life, that restoration, that cleansing in your heart and in your spirit. But you must confess those sins and ask for that forgiveness so that God may begin that work in your life. But finally, this morning in the way of commitment, I would encourage you to commit to obeying God completely. Yes, in this area of sexuality for one, but in all other areas as well. Would you make a commitment today that no matter what it may cost you, no matter what it will take, you're going to commit to obeying God's word and God's will for your life. Maybe for you today, it's stepping out and following in believer's baptism. You've trusted in Christ, but you've never uh, been baptized where you've symbolized and showed the world that you've died to your old self and have been resurrected to new life in Christ. Maybe God's been dealing with you about joining this church so that you can continue to grow in your walk and your relationship with him and you can get plugged in and begin serving and using the gifts that God has given you to help us be the church that God has called us to be. Maybe it's surrendering to a call to ministry that God's been dealing in your heart and your life and your spirit about and you need to say yes. Yes, Lord, today I'm going to do it. Whatever it is that you call me to do, I'm going to commit myself to your way and your will in my life. As we begin our time and invitation in just a moment, our pastors are available. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about whatever may be uh, in your heart and spirit today or whatever may be going on. Our altar is always open and you can come and spend time before God today. But today, would you experience the transformation of Jesus Christ by receiving him as your Savior and as your Lord?
Do you need to experience his forgiveness and his cleansing in your heart and in your life? And it comes by just requesting and asking that he would forgive you and cleanse you of those sins. Today, would you commit to obeying God fully in your life, whatever it may cost? Because I'll tell you, anything that you may quote-unquote give up in this world and its ways and things that you may pass on here pale in comparison to the fullness and the richness of you walking in obedience to Jesus Christ in your life and in your journey with him.